Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're on Clad 9 talking Warpies and more Warpies and why Nightcrawler is scientifically awesome according to science. Excalibur number 63 was originally published in March 1993 and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glenn Oliver on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Welcome back to our secret underground lair, Lousy with Mutants. We each have our own unique abilities subject to genetic destabilization. For my part, I am known as Dr. Anna Papard. I'm pretty good at writing stuff about representations of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture, but that's just the result of lots of hard work. My real mutant ability is my uncanny talent for promoting Kurt Wagner as his unofficial PR manager. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please remind us of your special gifts. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. Um, my special gifts are, let's see, running a mile takes me, if at top speed, a little under five minutes, but at cruising speed, um, you know, somewhere <laughs> between five and six, um, I can press maybe around 180 pounds uh, um, if, I'm doing, if I'm doing a long workout, but I can probably max out a little over 200. I do not have any special blending abilities of, oh, oh I'm sorry, did you mean something else or was that what you were, were looking for? Because um, that's what I do when I'm asked, you know, to just like sort of go through the the motions of testing my abilities for some reason <laughs> but also you know i guess i also teach literature and um I, oh wow i haven't actually said this yet i am a lecturer at the university of pittsburgh which if you go back and listen Yay. to other episodes that's not Yay. what i took from my other job <laughs> but, but, but that's what that's what i do for a living and um in the digital narrative interactive design department which means i do this professionally for a living i'm teaching kids to make podcasts about pop culture it's gonna be really exciting amazing, amazing. <laughs> um, but um but that and i host another this and another podcast called box podcast where you hear me talk about smart stuff on it uh, on occasion and then also i just you know sometimes i just fight holograms in my basement <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> This all sounds very plausible. We need like an official handbook of the Gosh Golly Wow podcast outlining all of our abilities oh, so that people have it straight in their head as canon. <laughs> you, I mean, and, and don't challenge. God, 
I don't have time to do this right now. Like, but I know I will. <laughs> you know how much, like, how much a fan of of the Othmute I am. I just, oh gosh, it would be very funny. <laughs> Andrew, please describe your mutant abilities. Uh, I, I think my greatest power is that after ten years of putting children to bed, I can sneak out of a room with incredible silence for a man of my size. <laughs> Other than that. I'm Dr. J. Andrew Demand. I'm an instructor at St. John's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, a big social media project on Chris Claremont's X-Men that's currently wrapping up, leaving me transitioning toward a new project called Sequential Scholars with Anna that should be coming online right about the same time this episode does, I think. Um, so very excited to see where that goes and delighted to be back here talking about Excalibur with all of you. Yeah, this is our first episode that we've recorded since, um, well, I posted about it on socials, everybody knows already, but um, since my mother passed away, so a bit, um, I didn't know if I wanted to talk about it, but I'll just say, like, just really briefly, like, we started the podcast right after she got the cancer diagnosis, like, a couple months after, and yeah, the podcast has been a really good sort of source of community and strength during a difficult time, and it continues to be that, and I am really happy that we are back. So welcome back, everybody, and welcome back, all of my all of my friends. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite comics today, so I'm excited. <laughs> um, let me introduce our fabulous guest for this week. So the team is joined this week by our first ever guest from a country where Nightcrawler is called Diablo, I'm told. The pod is thrilled to welcome, from France, Maxime Fontaine. Welcome, Max. Thank you so much, Anna, Andrew, and Nav for having me. My superpower is actually a super flow because I come from another country. Our fellow listeners will have to endure my horrible accent and really bad <laughs> pronunciation. For that, I'm deeply sorry, but I couldn't resist coming to this fine, fine podcast, which is just my favorite podcast ever. No kidding. <laughs> so I'm really, really excited to be there. Well, I uh, will tell our listeners a little bit more about you, and then we'll get into some of your very fine thoughts about Excalibur. Maxime Fontaine is a teacher and writer. He's the author of 15 books, largely in the realm of children's literature. One of his most successful novels is Les Sans Visages de Sorian Nesh, about a detective who's able to transform through a series of artifacts into heroes of classic literature, such as Sherlock Holmes, Dracula, Cyrano de Bergerac, Gulliver, Arsène Lupin, and others. Other works include Chance et Celsius, a children's book about everyday problems like step family and global warming. Maxime notes that in this series, the Celsius character is a little bit of a Nightcrawler ripoff. <laughs> Another fact about Maxime is that he's a big Nightcrawler fan, and we will be talking about that. So Maxime, oh, yeah. I know about your Nightcrawler fandom, I know about your comics fandom, but let's talk about your origin story. When did you start reading comics? Have you been reading them your whole life? Mm, regarding comic books, I've read a lot of French, Belgian, and Italian stuff. I'm also yeah. into man manga, a big fan of one Peace, Senseiya, Fremetal Alchemist. I bought my very first superhero comic book when I was 15. My parents had planned a long holiday trip and my father told me, pick up some books or you'll get bored. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> in the newspaper stores, there were some magazines and in these magazines, a couple of superheroes I knew through animated stuff and TV shows. I knew the Hulk, Spider-Man. I had been watching the whole Fantastic Four cartoon. I also owned some Secret Wars action figures, Captain America one, a nice man one. I recognized Iceman on the cover of a magazine and Wolverine on another one next to 
this beautiful, beautiful black girl with white hair floating in the sky. This was Storm, as you guessed, <laughs> on, a, <laughs> on a third cover. And there was this bizarre group of people, a woman with fire wings, Captain America-like uh, character with a Union Jack costume, a gorgeous blonde with pointy ears, a great-looking teenager wearing a Zora mask, and the last but not least, this strange blue demon on the corner, which I found funny and scary at the same time. Yeah. It was Ex- Excalibur, of course. <laughs> I didn't know the X-Men universe at all. I was totally lost, but I found it uh, so rich, so interesting, so adult in its semantics. It absolutely blew my mind. I was also struck by the art, which was unlike anything I knew. So realistic and yet so dynamic. So Mark Silvestri pages from Uncanny X-Men were so good with, uh, with lots of um, attractive women. <laughs> so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> in one single comic book. I was a teenager with lots of hormones kicking in. Mm-hmm. So, it's <laughs> my, so it might explain part of my fascination. I fell in love with Storm. So gorgeous, free and strong. Chris Claremont wrote uh, beautifully. But um, the, the artist I liked the best was uh, Alan Davis because there was a, a real sense of volume in what he did. The characters seemed alive on the page. You could uh, easily imagine them jumping in front of you. You could almost, almost um, touch them. As you know, understand, it was um, a, a very sensual experience for me. As, after finishing X-Factor and kind of X-Men and the first uh, Excalibur issues, I came back for more. I enjoyed Excalibur a lot because the tone, the mix of adventure, humor, second degree was quite unique. And also there was Nightcrawler in it, who became my absolutely favorite comic book character the minute I saw him with a devilish smile on his face fighting robot musketeers. A very different kind of superhero, but I guess we'll talk about him quite a bit together, right? <laughs> Always. But, well, let's talk, about, <laughs> let's talk about that now, because I want to hear more about your affection for that character. I've interacted with you a bit online. I know he's one of your favorites, so yeah, you said you fell in love with him right away. What is it that attracts you to this character? What keeps you attracted to this character all these years later? Yeah, yeah I, I'm a real, really huge Nightcrawler fan. Everybody who knows me in real life knows it. I'm talking about Nightcrawler a lot, mostly complaining <laughs> because we don't see him as often as I'd like or because he's written weirdly or badly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still identify with, with him, partly because I was born in 1975, so years we all knew all different X-Men appeared, perhaps, but mainly because this character guided me through adolescence. At the time, you feel quite insecure about yourself because of his difference, because of his uncommon features. Nightcrawler helped me to accept what I am and be happy for it. He was an, and still is a positive role model, someone whose strength doesn't come from his superpowers, but from his personality. I love this solar energy about the elf. He's uh, clearly the heart of the X-Men and the perfect embodiment of what uh, X-Men represent. People uh, who are feared and hated because of their appearance, because of their powers, but who proudly continue to fight with sometimes a smile on their face like Kurt Wagner. (laughs) (laughs) As always, when I was a teenager, everyone was a fan of Batman or Wolverine. Choosing Nightcrawler as a favorite was a way to express my difference. I, yeah. I guess I, um, I still dig the elf a lot, even if I prefer <laughs> the, the old Nightcrawler, the swashbuckling and sexy one, and not the over-religious fashion who appeared in the 90s cartoon and then win Chris Claremont. 
came back to the franchise. Uh, franchise, franchise. Sorry. I remember Dave Cockrum's reaction to this evolution. He didn't really like it because yeah. it wasn't the way he envisioned his creation, and I can understand that. And this day, I'm rereading Excalibur thanks to the three of you. So thanks, thanks a lot. Mainstream <laughs> comics never got better than that for me. It's fun to consider it in a scholar way now. It's an intense and exciting journey, and I'll never thank you enough, Andrew, Mav, Anna, for this wonderful trip. Aww. <laughs> well, I think you'd I think you'd mentioned in the past that you used to be on the Night Scrollers fan community oh, yeah. boards, oh, yeah. like talking about Nightcrawler back in the day. I kind of just missed the Night Scrollers era. I'd read through a bunch of it when I was kind of getting into fandom, but it was kind of on its way out. But yeah, I don't know. Any fun experiences there? Did you get to interact with Cockrum at all? Oh yes, I I, I, I interacted uh, with with Dev Cockrum the first time I I, I came um, online with with uh, uh, bamcentral.com it, it, it was a place that was run by uh, Jake Belanger an American boy who was a fan just like me uh, you had everything you could dream about at this place like a giant Wikipedia Nightcrawler page with mm-hmm. lots of hearts and news and facts uh, even if, if we never met Jake and I became friends he, he eventually asked me to run Bam Central it lasted a couple of years and then the, I went to this fine fine place called Nice Crawlers it was a message board with people obsessed with the blue elf like me <laughs> uh, a, a lot of them <laughs> i spent hours speaking with passionate people and yes def cockrum was was there the real def cockrum who invented uh, my two favorite comic book characters uh, and i call him storm and i had the pleasure and the privilege to chat with him it's uh, really great memories Aww, and i think you mentioned that you'd met derek robinson the the oh, yeah. artist on the 2004 nightcrawler series as well Oh yes, I'm, I've met quite a lot of people because I was a very active fanboy back then uh, when I was younger, <laughs> when I uh, had not kids. <laughs> I went at uh, different conventions. I met Chris Claremont. I ch- uh, chatted with him and uh, I met Alan Davis too uh, in the flesh. He, he even drew me a, a big Nightcrawler commission. You could see the Kurt Wagner at the top of a building with a gargoyle, like in the Inferno issue, you remember? Oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. You you yeah, got to yeah. share that with us again so we can tweet it out. Oh, yeah, yeah. No problem. No problem. Uh, th- this is uh, the finest pi- piece of heart that I own. <laughs> oh. Alan, Davis, um, Alan Davis even wrote to me personally to thank me for the support I was showing towards Clandestine. Clandestine is another obscure book that I love with a, with a passion. <laughs> but um, yes, yes, I've also met Derek Robertson several times in France uh, while he was uh, doing the Nightcrawler solo series. And uh, actually, I did propose a lot of ideas. For that, uh, for that particular series, by uh, under different names at different places. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my letters were printed. It was a really fun thing to do, and Derek Watson was a very, very nice guy. I liked him a lot. I remember um, asking for a personal story involving. Uh, Magali Zardos and Amanda Sefton in the Nightcrawler series. I remember I wanted uh, I wanted uh, epic storylines, a fight a fight against uh, Wolverine that Kurt would win and a powerful uh, villain that Kurt would defeat. We got Mephisto and it worked pretty well, I think. Oh my god, yeah. Well, many of those things ended up happening. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we did find out via Twitter relatively recently that 
Robertson is a big fan of the character and he was asked to be the artist on the Warren Ellis run apparently and turned it down at the time um, but then later got to illustrate Nightcrawler with Roberto Aguirre Sacasa of course in 2004 so some interesting Robertson tidbits there. Um, I, I, I spoke first with him online at Nightcrawlers because he came here to uh, to chat with the Nightcrawler fans and, uh, and, and he wanted us to know what we wanted the comic book is really really a cool guy cool guy yeah i think that series lives in a lot of fans hearts as one that we often go back to like i mean any series there's stuff that you know i'm gonna gripe about but it's definitely the nightcrawler solo series that i've reread the most often and still the one i kind of go back to from time to time i i I can understand that oh i have to talk about my last big action as a as a a fanboy of course Um, (laughs) the last one was during my wedding because we all dressed up as as comic book characters My wonderful wife, Mary, was born in Bombay, India, but we celebrated in France. Of course, we both dressed up as X-Men. She was Storm. I was Nightcrawler. (laughs) Mary (laughs) with her white wig and wedding dress. Me with a black suit, white gloves and blue makeup. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, it was quite amazing. At the party, every guest was in costume. There were even uh, Nazazel and the Mystic. Fun, fun times, as you can imagine. <laughs> oh my goodness. I will never top that level of commitment. That is amazing. <laughs> uh, I love it. I'm kind of proud of it. <laughs> as you should be. It's <laughs> amazing. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I always say that the nature of my own fandom is that I'm equal parts embarrassed and incredibly proud of my Nightcrawler fandom. And the two yeah. things just have to coexist always. Uh, it's Be true. proud of it. Be proud of it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> All right, let's do an issue summary and get into some specifics of this comic because I want to spend as much time as possible talking about this very scientific explanation of Nightcrawler's scientifically awesome powers. So let's get into it. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, but as always, we will start today's investigation with a plot summary. We begin in a dream, or rather a nightmare. Kylan slays Necrom and embraces Princess Satinine, but she too crumbles away and he wakes up screaming. Apparently he's been having these dreams for a while. He also apparently fell asleep next to a tree overlooking his parents' house. The one time Colin McKay nervously approaches the door and knocks, but only Warpies answer the call. Kylan slashes Warpies with the enchanted swords of Zaria, but because the blades can't harm those who are pure of heart, none of the Warpies are injured. As Kylan is stayed by his confusion, a blow knocks him unconscious. Meanwhile, in the Cloud Nine base, Nigel Orpington Smith, aka Peter, for reasons, explains the terms of Excalibur's visit slash imprisonment. They've each been assigned a guide to neutralize their powers. Peter insists it's all above board, even when the team sees an unconscious Alistair Stewart strapped to a series of medical machines. Minor injuries, says Peter, suffered when his agents were a bit too forceful, recruiting Alistair. Peter explains that the Warpies are afflicted with a degenerative disease for which they're trying to find a cure. Nightcrawler agrees to help. Many light years away, in space, the Phoenix Force finds itself forcibly (laughs) removed from Rachel Summers. It panics, knowing she'll die if it can't sustain her, but her assailant tells her that they are now outside of time. Death has come to speak to the Phoenix Force. It offers oblivion, but Phoenix ultimately decides death will take the universe if the champion of life is lost. As death fades, the Phoenix returns to Rachel and ponders its next move. Back at Cloud Nine, Kurt acquires a warpy fan club, including Silkworm, who makes him a new costume. This is just what he needs for showing off in a series of tests in the RCX version of the Danger Room. Kurt impresses everyone, obviously, but the test stops when an alarm sounds. Apparently, the alarm means Kurt, too, is afflicted with the degenerative disease. Elsewhere, on the south coast of England, Brian is still showing Megan a good time by trying to 
lift boulders while she begs him to stop. His strength has been fading, and soon his ability to fly follows. They're interrupted by another team of warpies, the Cherubim. They ask Megan and Brian to accompany them to the RCX headquarters. When Brian refuses, a fight breaks out, which is how we end the issue. So, let's start with some first impressions. Maxime, I know your first impressions of the issue won't be first impressions because you've read it many, many times. So instead, I will ask, what do you like about this issue? What do you find memorable about it? Why did you want to come to us to talk about this issue in particular? Well, at first, I wanted to record an Alan Davis issue with you um, because nothing compares to his heart on, on this book. I wanted an issue with lots of Nightcrawler in it and some Kylan and Cerise pages too. So here we are, issue 63 contains it all with a convolu convoluted story, lots of bizarre and obscure characters, and the stakes are not always clear. But despite its flaws, the story presents three important and memorable moments, I think. First, there is an interesting Kylan scene, which I like for its potentiality more than for what yeah. uh, it really offers, perhaps. I guess we'll talk about it. Secondly, in this issue, Nightcrawler changed costume for the first time ever. I know. Which was, yeah, which was a big deal for me at oh, that yeah. time. Uh, even if the new costume isn't really different from the old one and didn't stick, but uh, still, still, it was it was an event. Also, there is this danger room scene, which isn't really a danger room scene, but which totally is. It's a scene that I've read a lot, like a handbook of the Marvel Universe page, mm -hmm. but in sequential hearts. I know you love it too, Hannah, <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be really, really happy to discuss it because there is a a continuation there from Dev Cochran to Alan Davis with a, a lot of res respect involved. Yeah, definitely. Definitely want to talk about that scene a lot. How are you feeling, Andrew and Mav? I'll come to you first, Mav. First impressions of this issue? I honestly didn't have much memory of this before <laughs> before reading it. <laughs> and it. And it's funny because um, we, we, I read it before our hiatus. And then in the three weeks we were off, I forgot the entire plot and I'm like okay I should again <laughs> um so as far as alan davis's issues go that makes it somewhat forgettable in my from my from from my point of view i understand i understand what matt's saying <laughs> i understand why he likes it but it's just it, it was weird because it wasn't the one that like it's not one of the ones that really sticks out to me now it's not bad i don't mean to say that right like it's um <laughs> It's very much a setup issue. Like there's mm -hmm. more stuff. Like, in fact, it's entirely him putting the pieces on the board in the place that they're going to need to be for the next two issues. <laughs> like he's got a thing that he's doing because <laughs> the big character movement is Kurt, you're dying. Dun, dun, dun. And that's like how the issue ends. Uh, like, I mean, also Brian doing, you know, but Brian, we're going to take you in or do you want to fight? I want to fight. Dun, dun, dun. That's, there's a lot of that in, in, this, um, in, in this particular book. So that's where I was with it. It's like, oh, um, resolving something would be nice, but that, it's okay. Some, sometimes you need setup, especially in today's era. Today's era, this would be like absolutely the first or second issue because they need to be able to fit it into a six issue trade paperback. And that's how this feels. Mm. Yeah, that's been a struggle currently in the X-Men franchise with that, where things really have to be oriented around that. And it's been good for some storytellers and less good for others. But um, Andrew, what were your first impressions? I'm going to just build context by expanding on what Mav was saying, because I'm in the same place. I just felt like nothing happened in this issue. And we were actually um, DMing about this. 
and uh, Mav was asking, and I was like, oh, it's kind of a meh issue. It's good, but not much happens plot-wise. <laughs> and Anna, who is a scholar, which is a, a person who really doesn't think in absolutes, comes back with, wrong. <laughs> so much happens here. And she sent us a list of all the stuff that Nightcrawler um, fandom sort of perspective has developing in this issue. So I feel like this is a step back and let Max and Anna enjoy the issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's really good stuff here. Like it's a good issue. I just yeah, I agree with Mav. It's 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 a setup, right? It's it's like I don't know, putting a, a baseball onto a tee. I don't think either of us have been shy in the past uh, sixty six episodes of the show, I think, of going, I hated this. Like there have been issues where I've just like this this is absolute bullshit or this just sucks or that's yeah. not this. This is fine. No, not at all. I mean, you know, it's solid B plus, you know, <laughs> like, but, but I'm like, I'm like I, there's no spe- specific thing that really sticks out to me as, oh, wow, top 10 character beat for insert name here, like Kitty or, or Kurt or anything. Um, it's not like that kind of issue, but it's also not like where I go. Oh, they got Kurt so long. Oh, they got Kitty. Yeah. So there's literally exactly one thing I hate in this issue, and that's a refrain that's come up several times. It is the only thing that I absolutely hate is that Cerise is just uh, co- cosmically yeah. stupid here, and it irritated me because because it, it's just boring. But that's what the character was at this point, so it's not like it's even wrong. Like she was a born sexy yesterday character, and there was nothing more to her. So like she seems annoying here. But beyond that, I mean, I don't have to deal with Farron. That's a plus. <laughs> I think this is the issue where they make it canonical that Cerise was born sexy yesterday, right? Yeah. Oh, By establishing yeah. that she never matured. She just came she out was like just, this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I mean, I just don't want to overstate no Farron in this issue. Always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. We'll get into it. But I mean, it's just that, like, I can't be objective about this issue because it is this issue where Alan Davis goes all in on his own Nightcrawler fandom. And I think yeah. if you're a big fan of that character, you see that reflected and you're like, we're having a fandom conversation about Nightcrawler in this issue. And so much of the issue is just people watching Nightcrawler and being like, isn't Nightcrawler great? Like, there are so <laughs> many fan surrogates in this comic book just talking about yeah. why Nightcrawler is great. It's so fan servicey, but I think in a fun way that, you well, know. They literally need a group of fans. Yeah. Like, they literally I know, I know. Like, hey, can I have your autograph? And I'm like, right. I, I totally agree with you, Hannah. It's, for me, it's a, it's a really important issue, but yes, because I'm a Nightcrawler fan. I, I know. <laughs> Well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the Warpies being fans of Nightcrawler. So in our last episode, which I know, Max, you wouldn't have had a chance to listen to yet because it hasn't come out yet when we're recording. But we talked a lot about the nature of the Warpies and kind of their monstrous qualities and our mileage on that in terms of, you know, what are they doing for some of these mutant metaphors? What types of difference do they embody? And how does that interact with the kinds of difference that Nightcrawler embodies? You know, Nightcrawler is a monster, but he's a very beautiful monster, you know, whereas some of the Warpies have these differences that are a little bit more different, let's say. And Nightcrawler even alludes to that here. Like one of the lines that I find weird, but interesting maybe, but nothing ever comes of it. Peter says to Nightcrawler about the degenerative disease, first the Warpies lose their, you know, special powers and they become, you know, quote unquote human. And then Nightcrawler's like, oh, wow, that would be such an opportunity for hideously deformed mutants to be normal. 
And whew, there's a lot going on in him making that statement. I mean, even the specific terms that he uses there and stuff. And it is not something that ever gets brought up again. But it is definitely a line that I've thought about a lot. Because, wow, is that really his perspective on this? And maybe it is. And maybe that actually makes sense. Since, again, Nightcrawler's difference is very evident. But he takes so much joy in it. Whereas there are other mutants that have bodily mutations that they're not able to take joy in. So it's an interesting right. dilemma. Well, it's just, it's not clear that he's talking about himself and it's not clear yeah. that he's not. It is, a, yeah. Yeah. it is a weird line, right? Like, because one could say that, but also Nightcrawler is aware very much so that there are mutants that cannot re lead regular lives, even to the extent that he leads. A I mean, his life is not regular. He is not a normal person. If nothing else, he's a full-time superhero, right? So like uh, uh, ignoring the blue fur kind of thing. But, like, he knows that there are people who not only cannot assimilate, they just cannot be parts of, you know, human society. The Warpies are written as though that's their issue, though, frankly, for a lot of them, that really shouldn't be, as opposed to, I don't know, I'm just thinking, like, you know, like if you want to fast forward to, like, the Morrison era of, of um, X-Men. There are lots of characters who just literally can't function. There are people who have acid skin and who have no bodies and, you know, like they're like they're yeah. and they're, things like that. So he is aware that there are beings walking the earth where this might be absolutely the difference between being able to function in society and not. So I don't want to like just kind of say, oh, you're being evil here. On the other hand, you could also read it very much like a eugenics kind of thing. And I yeah. don't and I don't want to read it that way but only because i like the character of nightcrawler on the page it could be either and that's yeah. kind of a problem but i but I'm, I'm i'm choosing to to go with the positive meaning because i like nightcrawler and i like alan davis but i'm to be objective both of them are there so that's kind of weird yeah you can read it as sort of his emotional intelligence again i mean he's been on a team with rogue He's seen people who suffer intensely from their right. mutant abilities. So, I, yeah, I, I think that's a charitable reading. But as Anna said, like, it's not really explored enough for us to sort of figure out exactly what it implies. Yeah. And again, it's tough because it hasn't been something that's it's always something that I've wanted to see followed up on in later comics, because it is interesting for Kurt to have that conversation with other mutants about, you know, again, the different ways that they're different. But the times that I think about when it's come up, you know, there's a really good issue of Amazing X-Men where he has this empathetic experience with and all about you know their shared difference and and it's a really mm -hmm. positive exchange but at the same time their differences are different <laughs> you know like Anil has yeah. lizard, lizard skin and Kurt has velvet skin it's not the same and like paying attention to those differences matters and we often don't get sort of a substantial conversation about that or I think about there's a really lousy scene that I kind of hate but it's from priest Kurt era which is also like new X-Men era so I'm not going to put a lot of stock in it but Kurt has this interaction with Chamber in which Chamber's like, oh, I can't fit in with normal human society. And, you know, keep in mind that Chamber has like half of his mouth gone. It's like on fire. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And then like, yeah. And Kurt is like, how dare you, Chamber? Don't you understand how hard it is for me? You don't even know what you're talking about. And like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. there's some moments like that with Kurt where you're just like, and again, to do that, you have to do this thing where you're reading everything as canon and trying to make all these different versions of the character make sense. But I'm just bringing that up as to emphasize that 
it is a dynamic with Kurt that I've thought about a lot. And I do find this line here interesting. What's unsatisfying to me is that we never know what exactly he meant or like what his stance on this is. But agreed, I'd rather read it charitably given that we know Nightcrawler is not a horrible person. So let's go right. with that. Well, there's, I've, I think I've brought it up on, on the show before, but there's a more recent issue, the Domino Annual, where yeah, Kurt yeah. holds the, I don't, I don't know what he calls the group, but essentially it's like inhuman looking mutants anonymous it's a he has like a support group that he that he holds for mutants who cannot pass as human and uh kylan's in the group and they basically have um uh, uh, among other you know um many other x characters that just don't look like humans and kurt and domino basically give the you know welcome to aa pep talk but it's about looking funny and accepting yourself and it is a it is an interesting way of looking at it in that you know while neither domino nor kurt pass for human per se only barely right like kurt is blue and beyond that like he's clearly othered but he's also almost always portrayed as good looking in his otherness and Domino is basically just albino beyond that, you know, like Domino is exactly as inhuman looking as Harley Quinn in DC, who is portrayed yeah. as being gorgeous because of her, like, like, and literally exactly as inhuman, right? They have the same affliction per se. So it's not, it should not be the end of the world for either of them, as opposed to a guy who is missing his chest from mid chest all the way up to his chin with a big yeah. flame in the middle of it like that's yeah. a difference it's <laughs> very much we are not the same okay <laughs> <laughs> i know i know i mean the thing that i do like about yeah or it's you. leah williams you know, from... who, who wrote that <laughs> yeah. story in the in the domino annual it's just a, a vignette mm -hmm. within the annual uh, otherwise written by gail simone but um the thing that i did like about that story is that it does this thing with stacy x and she comes into the mutant support group and she has actually lost her powers and m day and is having a lot of feelings about that you know because she liked being you know a pheromone powered snake lady before and she isn't that now and people don't even recognize her and she has this real crisis of identity and then one of the other characters is like she shouldn't be in the support group because she's not one of us and then domino and kurt continue to welcome her into the support group and that's really important to the context of kurt and stacy's previous relationship during those priest years and i don't want to get into what a huge betrayal the current comics were of that status quo but um one of the things that was painful about that for sure because it was such a wonderful moment of Kurt's empathy you know on display there and it did have some interesting things to say about like that different nature of difference by having her talk about her loss of her difference and how that affected her so yeah I really liked that story a lot too um but let's get back to the comic at hand and Maxime what do you make of the Warpies being fans of Nightcrawler did you did you like this development did you feel like that made sense I kind of liked it. <laughs> I like it selfishly, perhaps. I'm a Nightcrawler fan. <laughs> I, I like the World Peace too. I suspect Alan Davis had a tremendous fun imagining lots of, and lots of new characters with uh, ridiculous names and unique designs. Uh, some came from the Captain and Britain series, but a lot of them were totally new ones. The way they behave towards Nightcrawler is clearly a way to say, uh, look at Kurt Wagner. He's so damn cool. Among freakish characters, he's yeah. uh, a paragon. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's as if every outcast character could uh, identify with Nightcrawler, as uh, as if he could represent them all. P perhaps there's a frustration there from Alan Davis, who did a great, great job penciling as this um, 
Excalibur pages and never receiving as much credit as uh, Jim Lee or Wobbly Fields did because the sales number were on the same, perhaps. Perhaps I'm, I'm reading too much into this, but by making Nightcrawler and Excalibur more popular in fiction than they were in oh, reality, yeah. Alan Davis wanted to, to produce a certain sense of fame around what he built. In fiction, it worked. Here at the Clone 9 headquarters, Excalibur seemed even more famous than the Fantastic Four, yeah. uh, which, is, which isn't true, but uh, <laughs> here we are. Also, it's kind of cool to have Kurt Wagner busy alpha male. Uh, here, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. I, I see it as a, a revenge for all the times he became a mascot or just a background character, especially with uh, John Byrne or John Romita Jr. During the John Romita Jr. era, is often beaten up or depressed, or he falls as a leader. Uh, here is uh, at his peak. Sadly, Kurt Wagner fell back into his mascot status when he came back to the X Men some years later. There aren't a lot a lot of good stories revolving around Nightcrawler in, in the X-Men pages, I think. Cyclops ones, Jean Grey ones, Wolverine ones, you've got plenty of them, but Nightcrawler, uh, Nightcrawler ones, when he appears as uh, flamboyant, as he does uh, in this issue, uh, so surrounded by uh, his teammates, I mean, it's, it's quite rare. I'm thinking about uh, Jason Heron and uh, Ed McGuinness uh, short run, Amazing X-Men, of course, which has become a classic, but aside from that, I can't really say. So the hierarchy between Kurt and the Warpies doesn't really bother me because I'm selfish, perhaps. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, because the, the Warpies are—they they are not trained warriors. They're strange, parodic characters. Yeah. Yeah. One can consider them as ordinary monsters, you know, like ordinary people, uh, as opposed to superheroes, I mean. Also, this hierarchy is, is anyone from the superhero genre, genre, where there are extraordinary people on one side and normal ones on the other side. And in this genre, one can't help but be attracted to the superhero characters who can bend the rules of reality, you know. And the, the rap is they're not as uh, experimented as uh, X-Men or Excalibur. They are manipulated by Nigel, who's constantly lying to them so the, the Rapids need a moral compass something that Kurt Wagner easily represents I just like I love that thing that you were saying about it's Alan Davis's fantasy for how he wants the fandom of Excalibur to be that was such a great observation. It's like he has them go to this basement lab with this whole alternate reality, basically, of these warpies, these alternate mutants that are not integrated into the larger X-Men universe. And they're all these huge fans of Excalibur and Nightcrawler in particular. And yeah, it almost is this like hermetic alternate reality. And like that's such a that really resonates with me. That's part of why this issue sort of stands out to me and continues to live kind of rent-free in my mind. And again, I, I go back and forth about whether that's good or not it's interesting and it is definitely a comic book after my own heart because of some of those rhetorical <laughs> gestures i do like it i think the point where it breaks down for me a little bit and that's the the premise which is okay. yeah in order to cure our disease we're gonna need kurt wagner to suit up and do some sick flips in our danger room <laughs> you know what i mean like, like that's either a really bad fanfic premise or a really good <laughs> self-aware fanfic premise yeah, and i don't yeah. know how to read it in in this issue it just it, it feels like a little bit too much of a um distortion of reality because I, I love the warpies loving kurt i think that's great i just thought that plot point bothered me a little bit and took me out of the sincerity of the scene 
Obviously, I, I'm of two minds about it because I totally know what you mean. And I 100% agree. It's total fanfic. 100%. But that's, <laughs> I think, what I'm sort of responding to in terms of <laughs> liking it because it's genuine. You know, it doesn't feel like checking boxes. It feels like I'm the writer and drawer of this comic and I want to do this and I'm doing it. And if I was writing and drawing Excalibur as a Nightcrawler mm. fan, I would do the same freaking thing. <laughs> so like, I think I'm over-identifying with it. Killing children, you know what yeah. I mean? Well. So there, there's an incongruity there for me that I can't, I can't get behind. Oh, but of course Kurt would... Yeah, okay, I get that you're sort of like, so he's doing this show-off thing and everything, and that undercuts the seriousness of the plot? Is that what you're sort of like getting at? Yeah, it, it, it just it doesn't mesh. Because either I'm okay. sad because we're trying to keep the children from being killed, okay, yeah. or I'm delighted because Kurt's getting this moment in the spotlight. Right, right, right. And I, I don't know that I have the sophistication to read both simultaneously. <laughs> I got you. But independently, I, you. I like them both. Yeah, <laughs> okay. they're not both there as much as you want them to. I mean, I, yes, I, I, I agree with Andrew that that is the story. I also agree that it is very fan servicey. People get very upset when you say this is fan fiction y, this is fan servicey, as though that's an insult. I don't mean it as an insult here. If I say it is bad fan fiction, what I mean when I say that is this is not terribly intricate, not terribly deeply written. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. And the distinction that, that I would make is this is something I've been doing a lot lately, trying to explain sort of my philosophy of as a critic as a professional critic of looking at things like um like recent marvel movies people will see that i on a five-star rating i almost always give every marvel movie between a two and a three and people will be like but you said you hate it doctor strange and but you said you loved thor love and thunder and you gave one a two and the other a three that's basically the same rating how can you say one's a recommendation and one's not and the answer is well the thing is neither of them are great movies neither of them are terribly well written or terribly deep but i enjoyed myself at thor that's the answer it's just like it worked for me and you're not me you don't have to be amused by the exact same things right frankly when the warpies are like oh my god it's curtain kitty oh my god oh my god oh my god can i make you a costume i'm just like this is so dumb but i love it and yes 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 they're di they're dying children I, I i get it um and i'm not a dad right like i'm, I'm like like I, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not a dad and i and i and andrew is and that's part that's going to affect it but the way I think it makes sense, the way I think I make sense of it is, have you ever seen footage of dying children in a cancer ward who get to meet John Cena? Um, and I'm picking John Cena on purpose. For for those who don't know, John Cena holds the record. He, he holds the record for the um, Make-A-Wish Foundation. He is their, one of their ambassadors. Wrestler, now actor, John Cena. When they asked him to do a Make-A-Wish thing like once, like 10 years ago, and he had so much fun. And he's like, this is my thing now. My charity, like my thing is as an actor is I'm going to go just brighten the lives of dying children. And that's what he does in all of his spare time. In his spare time, he travels the world for the Make-A-Wish Foundation and just like goes to like, you know, cancer wings and stuff and talks to sick kids because he's, you know, he's a pro wrestler. He can't cure cancer. He can't, you know, there's nothing. But what he can do is he can go and he can give kids a hug and he can hang out with them and, and talk wrestling to them. And they get like one bright day where they get to meet pro wrestler and actor John Cena and, you know, and meme superstar because that's kind of what he is. And it's delightful. 
like every time if you ever get to see footage of it the kids are they're going to be sick again tomorrow right like i get it but in that moment where they get to meet john cena it's like this is a celebrity (laughs) who has just made them you know the center of the universe for an hour and i think that's what we're supposed to get out of this like that's where i think it's trying to go that said i think i have to disagree though because like really under the terms of your own metaphor it's not bringing john cena to see the sick children it's bringing john cena to the lab yeah i know and that's 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 exactly what i was gonna say at at, at the end of the day (laughs) like i think it wants to be there but really it gets very wrapped up in the yeah, but like I really want to see Nightcrawler do this sick ass <laughs> flip right here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, like, like John Cena doesn't John Cena doesn't actually go to the cancer ward and then, you know, body slam <laughs> Randy Orton for them. Like that's not how that actually ends up working, right? It breaks down, but I but I think that's what we're supposed to get out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think but I don't necessarily think that's bad because again, we've got two people on the show today who are self-professed massive nightcrawler <laughs> fans yeah. who are like oh my god this is amazing oh my god this is amazing oh, yeah. and, and and at the end of the day you know it's not really you know it's not really going to a real make-a-wish foundation it's a comic book and its job has got to be to amuse people and to the extent that it's doing that you know 30 years later it's still amusing to big nightcrawler fans that's good oh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> i really like that comparison Mav, because i think that speaks to how he does in the sequence and you know how he performs in the sequence and the fact that he does literally perform in the sequence because he's performing for fans you know because you know andrew's like oh he's not it's not serious enough or whatever and i'm like yeah but that makes sense in the context of <laughs> But it does, because it makes sense in the context of that's 100% what Nightcrawler would do. Nightcrawler can't fix their disease, but he knows that they think he's really cool and he can perform for them and make them happy because that's literally his whole deal. I mean, that is his whole life. It's character consistent, no question. Mm -hmm. He's he's a performer. He's a sickle artist. I mean, and and the the alternative is that he picks one of them up and throws them into a fire. Because that's his other solution. <laughs> yeah, that's his other solution to problems. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many interesting terms and questions that we brought up here, you know, about like what is fan fiction, aka illegitimate stories versus legitimate stories. You know, what is fan service? Is fan service bad? What are the different meanings of that term and stuff? And all of these things are almost like a way too big of a conversation for us to just settle on this one episode. But it is important to think about what we mean when we say things like that, right? Because I, when I say bad fan fiction I always mean that affectionately because I love bad fan fiction and yeah I don't know there is a question that you can think about about who does make the meaning of the stories right you know how much is the meaning that I attach to Nightcrawler what was intended by whatever percentage of Nightcrawler stories and how much is it the meaning that exists among fandom based on the potentiality that's presented to me in comics because we have this idea that fandom is always bad and there are reasons why we have that perception you know you think about like mra is like spamming captain marvel reviews or something like that and (laughs) because because something like that or comic skate or whatever like those are like the loudest contingents of fandom so much of the time that we think when we talk about fanboys and fan service i think a lot of people go to that idea like even when they talk about stan culture or something right like i'm very self-conscious about like being called a nightcrawler stan because i'm like it's not that i want him to be the most powerful or an omega mutant or beat everybody up or be the star of every book it's that i care about the character and i just want him to be emotionally interesting and consistent and that's different to me i don't yes <laughs> yes it is, it is it is different i think that you're you're nailing the problem 
right there. The term Stan, right? Like literally Stan, not just fan, comes from an Eminem song where fandom was taken to the extreme to the point that it was right. dangerous. That's yeah, where Stan's yeah. from, right? And then like sort of the internet decided to reclaim it, I guess, and we're going to be where, and I, I don't know. And that's fine. I don't think that there is a substantive difference in the fandom, and I'm putting quotes around fandom, it's very important, in the fandom between the biggest pro-feminist, pro-queer, pro-BLM you know, um, BLM fan of any literature and the biggest MRA asshole fan of any literature. They both just love the literature. The difference is in what you do with it after the fact, right? Like if you decide that, hey, you know, Superman is about the superiority of the white race. Yay. Like you could make that reading and I will hate you. Okay. <laughs> like, like that's like I it, it's still an interpretive reading, right? So I, I think at some point it's okay to just be a fan of something, a massive fan, right? So like the people who you're talking about who are just like spamming message boards and spamming Rotten Tomatoes with review bombing Captain Marvel, for instance, right? Those people are idiots and that and and at that point it's no longer about the fan culture right like there's a i saw a guy who gave a review to the the new ms marvel show which um which wrapped today as we record but their review of the first episode was nope i'm not watching this because the girl is a big captain marvel fan and brie larson sucks <laughs> so like that so like i'm done and i'm like that's the whole oh plot to ms God. marvel and if you don't and if oh it, like God. like you either you either know that and you're being an ass or you don't know that <laughs> And then you're not really as big a comic fan as you are pretending to be. Because, like, in the comics, that's literally Kamala Khan's whole character. That's it, right? Like, like the, the TV show actually complicated it a bit. But, like, that's the basis for the character is, hey, I'm a massive fan of Captain Marvel. And you don't have to like it. There's tons of superhero stuff that I don't like. I wrote a whole dissertation about superheroes and how great they are. And I don't like a lot of it. <laughs> You know, I've written chapters and books. I don't like a lot of stuff and it's fine. Like, so have you guys. Like, there's, we don't all like everything and it's okay to not like everything. I just think, I, th I think fandom gets complex whenever we, and I mean we, me here, um, when, whenever anyone goes and tries to say the real fans are the people who do this. Well, no, everyone's a real fan. Some real fans are just awesome and some of them are jerks. Well, <laughs> and yeah, I don't that's, think that's well, about whether yeah. fandom's bad. Yeah, I mean, well, it's a big problem in kind of fan studies that we're still reckoning right. with, which is, you know, that a lot of the theories from the 80s about participatory fandom presented that as an exclusively positive thing. But fan studies are sort of mm -hmm. realizing in the last, you know, couple of decades that, oh, sometimes productive fandom means taking a thing that was explicitly anti-white supremacy and making it white supremacist, because that's a thing you can do. And right. it's not a thing I want you that's to do. But, you know, that's like fan creativity in its own yeah right but on the other hand i mean to be fair i do that too right because i mean i do that in the opposite way because i i use tarzan to teach lessons about you know otherness and race but the actual book tarzan as i pointed out on this show and on my other one frequently and to my classes i teach tarzan fully aware that the actual text is about you know eugenics and eugenics being a good thing it is a racist book that i am choosing mm -hmm. to read the other way and to deal with the issues and to acknowledge the problematic history and say okay so what can we take from this so i 
I just think that it's on the responsibility of the reader, and I don't mean the academic reader, I mean all readers, to sort of be a good person and like do things responsibly. Literature doesn't do anything on its own. Literature requires participation. My next TED talk about Walter Benjamin will be in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing that I'm trying to get at here with kind of thinking about what fan service means, though, is that we can evaluate different instances of fan service, right? Like what fans are being serviced here, which is like such a loaded term. But anyway, what <laughs> fans are being serviced here and like how and why, right? And I mean, in this scene, it's like a bunch of kids who are struggling with illness and and being different get to watch Nightcrawler embraces difference and be cool and be happy for a little while. And it speaks, as Maxime, you know, said so eloquently to what so many fans see in the character as a character who celebrates his difference and that being a real point of identification for so many fans. So that's what I would describe as the fan service that's going on here. So again, that's why I'm just trying to be like, fan service isn't always bad. It depends on, you know, what the fan service is and what it's doing, right? Yeah, I'm not ever going to complain about fan service. I like fan service. I think it's an important element for um, sort of allowing the text to transcend its own natural barriers. What I would argue in this scene, and I apologize for harkening on it, but um, <laughs> or harping on it, I should say, I think the way that you got from A to B was a bit of a MacGuffin, was a bit of a contrivance, whereas I would prefer that fan service moment. Again, I love the moment for Kurt. I would prefer that the, the writing of getting us to that moment didn't signal its artificiality to such an extent. Because for me, that's a that's a breach of the the fundamental narrative. It, it, it's breaking the fourth wall a little bit, um, and, and that's the part that bothered me a little bit in this book. But even that's maybe a little unfair because Excalibur has always been a kind of winking text, maybe less so, so under Davis. Fact, but the thing that bothers you is specifically that the science requires him to do the the sick ass flip or whatever, right? Like that's that, yeah, talking about that's. I mean, for, you can come up with a lot medicine, of reasons why Kurt has to out. do sick ass flips, right? Um, <laughs> I, I just think it could have been integrated to the narrative in a better way and in a way that was more tonally consistent with what the rest of the story was trying to accomplish. <laughs> I just, it's so hard, Andrew, because I, I think we're not going to see eye to eye on this we're one. Not I'm get just, anywhere on this no, one. no, no, no. But it's just because I'm just like, oh, I know. It's so dumb and it makes me <laughs> smile so hard. <laughs> it doesn't care it's just like we're gonna do this and like just the deliberateness of it it's it's bad like i agree like it's like the scientists being like oh my god is there no end to his fabulous abilities it's so funny like i mean if you're a nightcrawler fan yeah i know if you're a nightcrawler fan you embrace the ridiculousness of nightcrawler he's such a ridiculous (laughs) character and he's a character who's self-consciously ridiculous you know who often embraces his own ridiculousness so when I think about what does Nightcrawler fan service look like, that embracing of the ridiculousness sort of has to be part of it. And even when I think about the nature of his powers and all the different stuff they go through here, he reminds me quite a bit of Martian Manhunter in that he has all of the powers, but people often forget about it because they're running through all of his different things. Like he can disappear in shadows. He can teleport. He has like agility, but it was maybe not an actual superpower and just the result of lots of hard work because we really have to emphasize how awesome he is. And then we're going through the science of his teleporting and how amazing that is. And like, again, is there no end to his fabulous abilities? And you're just like, this is a ridiculous character and this is a ridiculous scene. And I love it so much. That part actually bothered, that part actually bothered me slightly on the one yeah. thing. And, it, and again, we've been joking about it 
because it's the funny one, but it's it's specifically on the sick ass flip part of it, right? It's like I get why the scientist is amazed by the his ability to camouflage to the point of invisibility. I get why the scientist is amazed by his ability to teleport. And then he's like, but the agility, it's just through the um, the you know, level of hard work. Amazing. I'm like, dude, he did a cartwheel. I can do a cartwheel. That's the thing that people learn to do. You know, like like I mean, like again, I mean, it's cool, but you know slow down a bit like nerds <laughs> you know? like cartwheels are a thing like if you if you got some time i can teach you i know because i've taught four-year-olds so like I can, we can work this out we can work out the cartwheel thing so that was a little much for me on <laughs> well yeah well i mean it's controversial too you know davis's insistence that kurt doesn't have super powered agility because that is a point of contention uh between different depictions of nightcrawler i'm inclined to think he does have super superhuman agility because it's one of those things where you kind of need that as a macguffin explanation for how you can compete in a superhero world. The sure. other thing that's brought up here is that they propose that some of Kurt's abilities are mutant abilities and some of them aren't, which is related to that agility thing. And they propose that his physical mutations aren't actually part of his mutantness or sort of are or sort of aren't because they propose second that he's generation a second mutation. generation mutant. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, is, it's a nod to mystic, uh, obviously. Um, perhaps I'm making things up here, but I, I think I've read an interview where Alan Davis wanted to explore Nightcrawler's origin. Yeah. And my, te my, te my theory is that uh, Alan Davis was preparing the, the ground for himself or another writer, I, I don't know, to develop uh, this dangling plot, which appeared in the pages of uh, Uncanny X-Men a long time ago, involving Mystique as uh, Kurt's mother, or, or father, in fact, <laughs> or father. Um, it was Chris, Chris Claremont's uh, idea. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mystic is a shapeshifter. If Nightcrawler is his son, he can sometimes act as a chameleon, mm. in, but in a different way. It makes sense. Uh, sadly, Alan Davis never wrote uh, Kurt Wagner's origin story. This got dealt with uh, later with, by Scott Lobdell. I, I kind of like Scott Lobdell's work from time to time, uh, especially with uh, Chris Bacalo on Generation X. Mm -hmm. But uh, this mystic and Nightcrawler stories that he invented, it wasn't his uh, best work. I would have preferred to have um, Helen Davis uh, speaking about it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, definitely, it seems like one of the things that's going on here, like, I, I, I don't know if Davis knows he's going to be leaving the book and, you know, what is it? Yeah. Four issues from now or something. Mm. We're right at the end. We're getting so close. But um, yeah. not at the end of the podcast, <laughs> so, so just at the end of the Davis era. We're going to continue. Don't <laughs> don't worry or thank you or you're welcome or uh, we're sorry. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but But yeah, you see him trying to like solidify a lot of things about Nightcrawler and trying to make them canon and assert them and put his stamp on the character and the new costume is part of that too right and you know we already pointed out the costume's not going to stick around but it certainly seems to be part of that effort and yeah it's like I don't know that second generation mutant thing is another one of the things that you know as like a person who cares too much about Nightcrawler I've thought about so much because it's such a potentially interesting aspect of the character in terms of what he means within the X-Men franchise you know we've already talked about him being the soul of the X-Men all of these different things 
and that idea that, you know, it's like mutant royalty is not the right word, but it's just that he has such deep connections to like, you know, mutant culture and the history of mutantness, you know, through his parentage and through this idea of being, you know, a second generation mutant and stuff. And I always liked that idea and maybe something will interesting will happen with it in the future. Some of the teases for the Judgment Day event have had Destiny and Rogue and Kurt and Mystique hanging out and scenes together. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. But yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that's brought up here that, you know, you keep thinking about as a Nightcrawler fan and hoping that someone will go back to. But at least we have this issue to revisit and gush about from time to time. Um, Let's talk about the Kylan of all of this, because we haven't talked about him yet. And we're running short on time. And I want to make sure that we give you a chance to talk about him, Max, because I know you like Kylan as well. So yes. (laughs) So yeah, like what what draws you to him as a character? So first, let's let's face it. Kylan is a kind of a Lionel ripoff. You know the lead yeah. character from the Thundercats <laughs> okay. cartoon. Yeah. yeah. The and Luke, the Enchanted Swords, but that's good influence. And Kylan is has his own personality, and his own story. Um, when I discovered the, he was really Colin McKay, the little boy from issue number two, that strangely I never forgot about. <laughs> it blew my <laughs> mind. I, I, I like I like the the idea that he's there from the very beginning. I don't mm-hmm. know if it if it was Chris Claremont's intention all along uh, or, or if it's totally an Alan Davis idea. Whatever. I find Kylan fascinating. I like the idea of uh, this fantasy character in a sci-fi book like Black Knight, perhaps, but way cooler for me. <laughs> Alan Davis invented the perfect design, a superhero who's um, immediately uh, recognizable. So, uh, these are the, the characters I like the most, like, like Crawler, like Storm. Killing series don't need costumes. You know exactly who they are the minute you look at them. Something that can be said for Bruce Wayne, Steve Rogers, or Clint Barton when they're wearing civilian clothes. Uh, civilian clothing, I mean. Um, so so I, I like Killen's look. Kylan's look. Um, he's quiet, yeah, yet warrior personality. The mm. fact that he, he, he lost the woman of his dreams, his ridiculous power, uh, mutant power, his yeah. magic weapons that can't hurt yeah. adversary, adversaries who are pure of heart. There is drama and humor surrounding him. You have it all. You know, also I have a deep affection for this scene here at the beginning of issue um, 63. I know this is the, uh, there is um, this internal monologue which is pronounced by Kylan out loud. No one would ever speak like that about his feelings <laughs> <laughs> while being alone. But still, still, I, I love this moment with uh, with him or with Fred than ever close to finally meet his parents. After 20 years of exile, almost ringing the bell to be reunited with them, but finally, finally taken away for, from them, so frustrating. Quite great. From here, I, I longed from, for this family reunion, a reunion which could have been great, uh, a great moment of emotion and drama and uh, misunderstanding, but which never really happened, which happened off-panel. I, I think Kylan mentions it in Excalibur's final issue, but uh, that's it. Kylan is... Uh, such an underrated, forgotten character. He had the potential to become someone important, I think. But uh, hey, you never know. I was quite surprised and pleased to see him pop up in the recent uh, Knights of X series. Mm. 
so many years after his disappearance, uh, it's quite a miracle. Uh, at least Tini Howard can still make him matter if she doesn't kill him, that is. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, that doesn't matter right now, they'll be fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's more difficult with uh, Cerise who becomes uh, someone really different after Alan yeah. Davis' departure uh, I, I have to admit uh, regarding Cerise I never never got over what Scott Lobdell did to her mm. I'm still sad because he turned yeah. her into someone really different yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. That's we're gonna take a turn with her in the in the yeah. issues ahead, but not for a few issues Sorry, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, it's so. I love the dramatic irony of Colin knocking on the door and then getting dragged away by the warpies, but the fact that we never get that reunion is frustrating yeah. and i i went back and i was like do we like does this and yeah you're right i think it just gets mentioned just uh sort of wrapping up the series and explaining colin leaving the team but yeah we never get it on panel which is so sad frustrating <laughs> i know andrew mav did you have thoughts on on colin's appearance on this issue I wouldn't mind talking about his swords really briefly. Yeah, go ahead. Um, okay, so we, have, we we know what they are. They, they can't hurt the pure of heart. We've seen this from like his second appearance or when he actually comes over to Excalibur. I think that's kind of fascinating. I'm not sure if it fits in Excalibur, but like w when I teach um, Batman comics, I always teach my students that Batman does have a superpower. It's that he's always right. Uh, it's, it's such a meditation on justice, but like Batman punches the bad people and saves the good people, uh, except in very rare exceptions like the Hikataya, but that's an exception that proves the rule so i think having this sort of um supernatural arbitrator i guess uh of like spiritual goodness is it's a very fantasy premise it doesn't necessarily fit excalibur but it certainly fits kylan and his role in excalibur um so i think it's kind of cool uh as a way to i don't know either, either bring in justice as a theme into kylan's character and thus by extension into excalibur's narrative um or to maybe even just draw in more high fantasy elements into the excalibur universe um, which I assume is what Davis was always trying to do based on the whole um, um, Conan the Sumerian riff that he was working off of. I like it here too because it is a little dramatic irony thing adding on to the dramatic irony of Colin not finding his parents because you know he gets attacked by these people but like oh these people aren't really bad which works with the whole thing of we know Peter is like up to no good and is not a good person but we're not specifically sure what the terms of that are yet and I do find yeah. Davis's negotiation of that quite effective because you're like you're still at this point not really sure what's going on and you're kind of in the same position as the characters in that way and i do find that effective but yeah i don't know i like his little yellow hoodie i just wanted to say that he's dressed so nice for this walk that's like a styling little hoodie with the like pinched yeah. waist he's looking yeah. sharp he's looking sharp as kylan um let's move to some final thoughts anything from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about and i'll come to you last max but um i'll come to you first andrew oh, we didn't talk about brian and megan at all so if we want to revisit what's going on there yeah i mean not a lot happens happened. here no um yeah no my only final thought just because we've been tracking davis's evolution as a writer i'm finding that his prose is getting quite good uh when he's writing like um there's the the kylan line where he says um with sundered heart i must live on in this world of my oh. birth it's very dramatic but so's kylan so i kind of like yeah. that but yeah. at the same time i keep finding that same complaint where i'm like write less you're like one of the greatest <laughs> visual storytellers in comics history so I'm still finding some redundancy to it, but you're seeing him get a lot better. You're seeing his writing get strong at the prose level, which is something we haven't talked about with regard to Davis. We've mostly been focusing on his plots. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I think it's cool to see his continued evolution and that'll just make me sadder when we're not talking about him anymore because he's not writing this book anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I will say though, like it's just, 
I think so much about the time crunch of it and how I always wish that he'd had more time because this is a beautifully done issue. There's a lots of great sequences here, but there is some sequences that you can tell he didn't fully finish and sort of the inks are making up for it because I mean, I noticed things like, you know, lack of consistency of like sort of Kurt's facial features and stuff from like scene to scene and stuff. And I feel like it's worse in the next issue. And then the one after that, like it just feels a little bit more rushed than like issue number 61 did. And I just, uh, I just, I feel that. And I wish he'd had a little bit more time because I mean, obviously his tremendous skill as a storyteller is here, but there's just sort of little things like that, that I do notice. Yeah. Um, Mav, final thoughts. There are a couple little details and I, I'll start with the one that Andrew didn't want to do, which was, I do want to talk about Brian and Megan. Um, <laughs> you know, I do a little bit too. Ch- chicks dig when you crush rocks, I guess. <laughs> I, <laughs> it was a, like Anna in, in your, I made a joke summary, about it. You're like, you know, Brian is continuing to impress Megan by, by, by lifting a rock. And I've had the good fortune to date multiple women in my lifetime at various times and i've not not yet i mean i and maybe this is just my own stupidity it never occurred to me to just be like hey babe look at this i'm gonna lift this rock not a thing that i've ever done (laughs) but but here he is and she's like no brian don't hurt yourself it's like no so that one was just like i what is going on here and then it's like i'm like this is stupid brian is a meathead but then he crushes the rock and damn it she's actually impressed and i'm like oh okay so apparently that's a thing but i actually do like something about it there's a little detail in there that i like which is I love the detail that when he crushes the rock, she's impressed, but mostly because she's just happy that he has his powers back yeah. because it got to show not because it's it's not really the rock. It got to show us there's actually a little bit of shallowness to Megan and we, mm. it, it doesn't get followed up on, at least not right now, because the, you know, they get attacked, but she's like, well, you know, when you lost your powers you looked different and he's like what and he's like well your aura was going and yes i get that it's like a different like the charitable reading is like something about your soul changed but that's not what she said megan doesn't see things the way we see it and like she's apparently attracted to certain things about brian including the aura which is around them when his powers are there and when he lost them she's not and again is that a is that a charitable thing is it a good thing about megan i don't know it's a human thing about megan that i find interesting and that i would like to see more so so that was my good thing about it like it's like yeah like because she's almost ashamed like she doesn't tell him because she's ashamed to tell him that she's like it's sort of the we we've we've teased ryan before where where whenever megan's upset she's like would you love me if i looked like this and we're like no he wouldn't yeah but you're not perfect either you know like that's a that's a thing and i like that she's complicated here because so often she is written to not be i'm actually glad i'm really glad you brought it up mav because i had very similar thoughts about it because i've just been grasping at like what does she see in him i don't really care if their relationship isn't quote-unquote positive i just want to understand what it is you know if it's codependent if it's whatever that's fine i just want to understand what it is and like yeah seeing that she has that investment in him being this certain kind of super powered character that is something that is something you can see that she is attracted to that 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 is important to her and you know whatever way you read that and i did read it having a bit of a shallowness to it too and i did really like that similarly because that does explain something because megan doesn't have to be perfect i just want her to have motivations that are understandable and you know brian is beautiful and powerful and that can be a motivation i 
think that definitely could be a motivation. And yeah, it's not a lot here that we get, but I did read that into it too and actually enjoyed that as well. My other thing was to complain about Cerise, which I already did. I I found her infuriating in this. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, is that what they are? They're babies. How does that work? Oh, are you a baby kitty? No, she's, uh, again, she's... (laughs) She tells you here that she's a bio bioengineered being and whatever. She's not stupid. She's traveled the universe. Yeah. She's seen yeah. a baby yeah. before. Stop. Oh, yeah. Like it's just like it's <laughs> things like that. It's just like no. There's a difference between making someone naive and making them inhuman. Even if you're going to do the born sexy yesterday trope, which is a which I'm actually not as I'm not as down on the born sexy yesterday trope as other people are. I think something interesting can be done with. It. This is not interesting. It makes her look like a simpleton, and she doesn't need to be. Yeah. Like you, this is a woman who just traveled the universe with space teleportation technology by herself. She knows what a baby is, and 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 that one in particular bothers me because the same thing happens in the Wonder Woman movie, which I really like. The first Wonder Woman movie uh, that Patty Jenkins makes, she's like, "Oh, a baby. What is that?" It's like, no, like literally, she explained male female reproduction yeah, in a scene like 20 minutes ago she knows what babies are like stop stop like don't make people stupid in order to get the joke like i'm I'm okay with the joke i'm okay with the moment i'm okay with the naivety don't make them stupid and that uh, it's just like stop that irritated me so much because it's like it, it just it take that's one of the few times where i was just completely taken out of this story even more so than the guy like raving about the cartwheel yeah i mean it's hard because i think you could have done the exact same scene but had it be like cerise saying oh i've been reading in the memory banks about children you know like is that why you're so small kitty because then at least you'd be like oh okay she hasn't just been here for weeks just sitting there like an automaton not observing the reality around her because how the hell else would she be this like right ignorant (laughs) right she can be naive she shouldn't be stupid like she'd have to be like (laughs) it makes no sense and so things like that irritate me i mean if nothing else she's been around the warpies for an hour now yes yes yes. you know there several of them are little (laughs) like it's like the logic of it makes no sense and so things like that irritate me my final comment was also going to be about brian and megan and i said most of it but i did just want to also as much as i did like the Megan stuff I also this scene made me a little bit like like we had some issues with the proposal and the last one and like Brian foregrounding himself and not talking about Megan or two issues ago rather but like there is something that makes me super uncomfortable about the scene in that like you see some of those abusive aspects of the relationship come back to like for two pages she has a lot of concern on her face and is all like ooh and kind of staying away from him and then when she won't immediately tell him about the aura he's quite violent with her like answer me Megan and grabs her shoulder while she turns away in fear and I'm like "Mm, this right after you asked me to buy into the proposal I have a little bit of a like "Mm," reaction to this or I'm like run the hell away from this guy Megan like a guy (laughs) that yells at you like that when you won't immediately answer his questions is a problem and I want to see you get out of this situation but just my two cents Maxime let's come to you with the final word anything from this issue that you didn't get a chance to talk about or just anything that you want to come back to final thoughts about this issue oh i, I wanted to speak about the terminator appearance and the Gunomorph oh, appearance okay, a little sure. bit yeah. uh, isn't this uh, scene a way to poke fun at cable 
who's the Terminator ripoff, or even at uh, Broods, inspired by the Alien movies. Uh, th mm. There is this great parody field here, which goes throughout all of uh, the Clone 9 storyline, with the Danger Room, which isn't the Danger Room, and with the Warpies being cheap version of the X-Men, uh, somehow. Um, yeah. uh, Oslot can be seen as a skinny Wolverine, Lodestone as a Magneto, Hawk as a Colossus. Mm. It's silly, it's funny, I don't really know what to make of this, honestly, but I I love the mood. You feel Alan Davis is having fun with all this stuff. Uh, I love Alan Davis' run for that. You can have epic cosmic fights with Phoenix and then parodic characters on the next page. I'm, I'm glad Excalibur kept this unique tone, a balance between darkness and humor. Up to this point, I think Alan Davis did a great job, despite all the plot holes and clumsiness as a writer, and he will continue to do so just after Excalibur with, uh, with the clandestine, which has uh, the same problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that speaks to why these things end up being these series that have kind of cultish fandoms, because it is like kind of like, yeah. sure, there are plot holes and stuff, but there's also so much potential and so much love and so much creativity yes, yeah. that goes into it and that's what keeps us coming back to it all this time i mean you know we brought it up many times but just the care that's going into designing all the different specific bodies and powers of all these different warpies it's like the creativity yeah. is off the charts totally and i will apologize that we didn't talk about phoenix on this issue but we have talked about phoenix quite a bit in the previous episodes and we are going to be having lots and lots of focus on her and the issues coming up i promise we will keep track of that ongoing storyline um i just wanted to spotlight real quick a fun letter from the sword strokes letters page before we go so this letter is from someone whose name is bent that's the only name that they give dear sword strokes excalibur 58 was kicking man the art is great and by the way i knew it was a clown that was telling the story is Farron staying with excalibur now is that his decision from now until phoenix comes back from kingdom come i hope so and i also hope he quits being stubborn because he looks like he would be a formidable warrior if his attitude wasn't in the way gosh how come cerise uses the lip massage only on nightcrawler and not on everybody else overall issue number 58 was fantastic until kylan gets a facelift make mine marvel signed once again bent i really liked that line about like i knew it was a clown that was telling the story because i don't know whether it's a joke or whether they're just totally seriously i know i know but it's just such a it's a good line i don't know if it's unintentionally poetic but i thought it was a great line my pride broke it my rage broke it this excellent knight who fought with fairness and grace was meant to win I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Maxime, merci for joining us. I wish I could answer better in French. We were lamenting at the beginning of the podcast that Andrew and I are both Canadians. And so, you know, we have technically like 10 years of, of French education and, <laughs> pers and no like je ne parle pas le français at all. Um, so we really appreciate you conversing with us in English. But yeah, thank you so much again. Wonderful to gush about Kurt and Kylan and one, all these wonderful things with you. But before we go, we need to remind our listeners of all the awesome things you get up to. So remind us of your work and where people can find it. It was a pleasure, Hannah, and I hope it wasn't too difficult for you listening to my babbling. It was invigorating. <laughs> I loved talking Nightcrawler with you.
you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Um, if there are French fans of the podcast among the crowd, I'll recommend uh, Sorcier, a big fantasy book that can be translated as Wizards, uh, like the magazine, you know. <laughs> inspired, It's inspired <laughs> by a role-playing game invented by my brother, Roman Watson. It's a 19th century story revolving around voodoo, magic, African gods, prestidigitation, and tarot cards. One put in vo volume and two others to go. Uh, you can find me on Twitter from time to time, uh, M-A-X-F-O-N-T-Y-I-N-E, uh, B-D. More often, more often of, on Instagram or, or Facebook. On Facebook, it's max.fontaine.7 and on Instagram, maxim.fontaine.7. Once again, thanks a lot to the three of you from the bottom of my fanboy heart. It's been an <laughs> incredible delight to speak with you. It's been an incredible delight to speak with you, Max. I'm so happy that you're here. Next, in one week's time, we'll be discussing Excalibur 64, Ascension, in which Brian and Megan joined the team underground and Rachel Summers is back in red. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those on our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, do let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've always got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Matt, for another wondrous conversation thank you maxime for talking with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thoughtform music for our truly epic theme song play us out and i'm really happy.